For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Romans 12, 3 through 8, which I entitled, Finding Your Place in God's Spiritual Community. And Paul begins Romans 12, verse um, 3, by saying, For by the grace given to me, I say to each and every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So he begins by calling for us to take a posture of humility. And in our culture today, you think about humility and what most people, I think, put out there is false humility. People who know that they're really good at something and then when they get compliments or applause from people or an interviewer asks them about their greatness, they say, actually, I'm not that great. It's actually my teammates who are great. In reality, the sense that you get from them is that their pride wells up within them. And the kind of humility that God gives to us in community is that there is this level playing field. It doesn't matter what social class you come from. It doesn't matter how attractive or how gifted you are. It doesn't matter how many advantages you've been given in life. God says that the entrance into his community is the same for everyone, no matter what place in life you're coming from. And so really, this entrance into God's community is the great leveler. God says that there's no way for you to earn your way to me, that we're all morally corrupt. We fall short of God's perfect standard morally. And so as a result, entrance into God's kingdom and his community requires that we humble ourselves, that we admit that there's nothing that we can do on our own to merit God's salvation and to be a part of his community. And so God gives us a theological basis then for true humility. You may be something big in the world, somebody important, but when you're in God's community, you're the same as anybody else. But I think that on the opposite end of things, people feel like humility means that I look at myself in the mirror and I think, you're a terrible person. Or we feel this sense of self-loathing about ourselves and we think that that's actually very humble because we don't view ourselves highly compared to other people. And yet, God has placed tremendous value on us as his creation. God says that he created each individual, each human being in his image. So as a result, we have innate value because we're God's creation. Not to mention, God says that he confers upon us this incredible identity of being his son or daughter in Christ the moment we receive him and experience Jesus' forgiveness. And so we don't want to fall into the opposite error of arrogance and pride where we look at ourselves and excoriate ourselves for how terrible we feel Instead, we should see ourselves rightly. We should see ourselves through the lens of which God says we, we are, who we are. Andrew Murray, in his book entitled Humility, 
I think defines humility pretty well. He says, humility is simply acknowledging the truth about who we are and yielding to God his rightful place. So it's on the one hand a realization that there's nothing that we can do to merit God's approval or a right standing before him, but at the same time not sinking to the point where we feel like we're worthless because God has conferred upon us value. Not only because we're his creation, but because of what Christ has done. But it goes even further than that. I like how Rick Warren puts it. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So one of the things that you see in a humble person is that they are preoccupied with other people and how they can serve. They're not constantly focused on themselves. They're the opposite of somebody that you might regard as self-absorbed or totally self-conscious. Well, Paul goes on and gives us even more reason for why we should have humility. He says in verse four and five, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So he introduces this metaphor, which I think is part of our new identity in Christ, that we are what he calls the body of Christ. In another passage, Paul gives us a more succinct version of this. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, he says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Again, notice the flattening of the social status, the equality that we enjoy in Christ. But he says that we were all baptized into one body. You know, when we think of the word baptism, we think of water baptism, where somebody gets dunked in water, or maybe a priest sprinkles a baby with water. But this word baptize actually simply means to put into, to place in, So the context sort of determines what that means. So for example, if you went to Arby's and you ordered the French dip sandwich, right? You took your baguette with roast beef and you would baptize it into the au jus and you'd eat it. (laughs) You're baptizing your sandwich. In the same way, what Paul is saying here is that God through the Holy Spirit, baptizes us or places us into the body of Christ. And so that, I think, carries with it some implications that, you know, God hasn't made a mistake about where you have landed in his community. I think it's easy sometimes to look around at the people and think, why did God put me with these people? Especially her. (laughs) I mean, I have nothing in common with these people. They irritate me. And yet, if you believe what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, then you have to admit, at least theologically, that God, in his sovereignty, placed you exactly where he wants you to be. And that the people around you are the support that you need for spiritual growth and development in your life. Secondly, this describes this theological term that Um, Christian thinkers have used called the mystical union. And this describes this event that takes place. The moment you receive Christ, God actually unites himself with you. 
So there's actually kind of a vertical aspect to this mystical union where God indwells us with the Holy Spirit so that we're one with him. But that also happens horizontally as well. That in the same way that we are mystically united with God, other members or individuals who've placed their faith in Christ, members of the body of Christ, are also linked to God and therefore we are united with them. And so we experience not only a mystical union with God, but with other believers. And this really transcends the kind of unity that I think we experience in our culture. Now, the New Testament uses the terms body of Christ and church synonymously. In Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So he's equating the body of Christ with the church. And that's really a revolutionary idea because I think a lot of times when we think about church, we think about a a building, a holy place that we go to on Sunday. But actually, the body of Christ or the church represent the individuals, the people in God's community. And so you don't go to church. You are the church. And I think that's pretty revolutionary because if we are the church, then we have to read the New Testament through the lens of what God is saying about individual believers and his community as a whole. He says in verse five, so in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So Paul affirms not only the diversity within the body of Christ, but also the extreme unity that we experience. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse two and three. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So he says that we should make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Notice he doesn't say that we should strive to obtain this unity, but it's something that God has already given to us. So he says we should keep this unity of the spirit that we have. You know, you think about our culture today and people try to form unity through common activities or maybe their interests in music. A few years ago, I decided to treat my kids to a cultural experience. I like to sort of get my kids out there and expose them to different types of people and different types of culture. So we decided we were gonna go to OhioCon, Comic-Con. <laughs> and it was amazing to see all of these different people from all different walks of life centering themselves around comic books and superheroes with varying degrees of clothing on. And I thought to myself, you know, this is amazing that, you know, these people gather together around this hobby, this interest that they have in their lives. And yet what we're talking about here is a unity that sort of goes beyond that, something that's deeper than that. You know, one of the things that happens in life is that your interests change over time. And so one of the things that happens is when people form this sense of unity with one another that lasts only for a short period of time. 
And people end up having to find new ways to form unity and to gain that sense of closeness and, and community with other people. And yet what God offers us is something that's permanent, something that never changes, something that isn't going to, to, to be variable throughout our lives. Well, <clears throat> he says also that these members do not all have the same function. So on the one hand, we have incredible unity in the body of Christ, but also God emphasizes diversity, that we each have a distinct role in his community. And I'll tell you what, when I first heard this, this was incredibly revolutionary. The thought that God wanted me to play my part in growing his kingdom, in furthering his mission, was so exciting, so motivating. It made church actually very interesting. You know, this points to the fact that God doesn't stamp out cookie-cutter Christians. You know, when you think of a Christian, you think of like a certain type of individual. And yet God has given us a variety of different gifts. He's given us different personalities. He's given us different drives different life experiences. And he does this so that we can be a diverse community that can support one another. Later in verse six and seven, Paul talks about the variety of spiritual gifts that God actually gives to us when we come to Christ. He says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, serve. If teaching, teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leading, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So what happens, the moment you come to Christ, even though you may not see it, God actually fills you with spiritual gifting. And sometimes those giftings remain dormant until you step out and start serving, and then you discover your spiritual gifting. But God has given each and every member in the body of Christ a set of gifts to play their distinct role in the body of Christ. And he lists a few, even though this is not really like a complete list. He says, first of all, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. Now, when we think of a prophet, we think of somebody who can foretell the future, and the Old Testament prophets were able to do that. But for the most part, when you look at the Old Testament, the prophets were there so that they could speak truth in a way that was relevant to their culture. So somebody who has the gift of prophecy is somebody who can take God's word, his truth, and speak it in a way that is compelling and culturally relevant. Often, you'll either read or listen to a Christian author or speaker, and there's this sense that what they're saying directly resonates with you. I remember I heard this story where a Christian teacher was just going through a passage and teaching line by line a passage of Scripture, and afterward, this woman with this look on her face of, of disgust, walked straight up to him after the teaching. She said, how did you know? 
And he's like, what are you talking about? Who are you? And she's like, did my mom talk to you? And he's like, I literally don't know who you are or who your mom is. And she's like, so how did you know about all the things that are going on in my life? Because you were clearly aiming that toward me. And he was like, I wasn't. And so that's the effect that sometimes you feel when you are experiencing the benefits of somebody who possesses this gift of prophecy is that you feel God is speaking directly to you through his word. There's also those who serve. And this describes somebody who has either administrative gifts or somebody who just loves to serve and meet people's needs behind the scenes. You know, these are the people who kind of keep things running in your home church or in our church in general. And they love to just really take care of things and not really gain any sense of notice, but they, they desire to get their reward from God. Also, there are those who teach and are gifted at doing so. And this is, I think, a little bit distinct from prophecy in that teaching describes the ability to take complex theological ideas or passages that are difficult and being able to distill it down into something that's really easy to understand. And so these kind of people, whenever you're sitting under their teaching, you'll often find yourself realizing new things in the text or maybe understanding a narrative in Scripture in a way that you'd never seen before. Also, there are those who are gifted in encouragement. These are people who are steeped in prayer, people who are praying for individuals, and they have a way of really encouraging you at just the right time to sort of push you forward when you're feeling discouraged. Or maybe God could actually use them to stimulate you to to serve in a new capacity that you'd never thought about before. I remember I was 20 years old. That was a long time ago, 20 years ago almost. And uh, I was asked to give my uh, story about how I came to Christ. And so I stood up in front of a bunch of people and I just started telling my story. And afterward, a guy, I don't even know who he was, I can't remember, he came up to me afterward. He was like, man, when you were talking, like people really were listening. I wonder if like God has maybe gifted you with some sort of speaking gift. I thought, well, I don't know, maybe. But that implanted the thought, well, maybe I should try to test that out and see whether or not God has gifted me. And so that sort of set me on course to start learning more about the Bible, taking up opportunities to be able to teach his his word in public venues. And so even though I don't know who this guy is, I I forgot who he is, I mean, he made an impact on me that really changed the course of my life. Also, there are those who are gifted in giving, who God actually gives more and more financial resources because he knows that he can trust that individual to use that to take care of the needs of the poor, people, those who are needy. Also, there are those who are gifted in leadership, people who think strategically, who can take ailing groups and actually revitalize them 
fire up their imagination for what God could do through this group. And then finally, there are those who have mercy, people who feel deep compassion for those who are hurting. These are often people who are gifted in counseling as well, who know how to wade into some of the real dark, murky stuff in people's lives and can actually help them sort through it and gain victory in areas of struggle. So you look at all these things and you think it's an amazing set of gifts that God can give to each and every one of us and what God says is that each and every one of us has a gift that we can contribute and that in the absence of our spiritual gifting, the body of Christ actually is harmed. You know, this concept argues against a man-centered church. You know, a lot of churches, they're, they're a way of trying to grow not only numerically, but also grow people within their church spiritually is by trying to get somebody who is this charismatic, amazing leader and teacher. And so the thought is that you can just try to attract as many people as you possibly can, and through sheer force of will and charisma, this person can sort of propel the church forward. And yet, what you see in this picture here is this organic picture where everybody is sort of helping each other out. That there isn't just one person doing everything, but that we're all contributing something to the common good in carrying out God's mission. I remember hearing an analogy when I was a young Christian. It always stuck with me. This teacher said, you look at the modern church today, it sort of looks like an NBA basketball game. There are 10 guys on the court in desperate need of rest, 20,000 people in the stands sitting in desperate need of exercise. (laughs) The picture that God depicts for us of what the body of Christ should look like is that every single member plays their part, and as a result, the body of Christ grows. Also, it suggests that we are interconnected with one another, not just because of the benefits that we get from one another, but also that there is this level of support that we experience from being in community. You know, you look at people out in the world today and people are growing increasingly lonely. People feel like they have nobody that they can talk to about serious things in their life. And yet God offers us a community of people that can bolster us during times of difficulty, who can actually supply the nutrients that will help us grow spiritually. Sequoia National Park has the biggest tree in the world. It's called General Sherman. (laughs) This thing is 275 feet tall, 25 feet in diameter, and they estimate that it's about 3,000 years old. Here are a few pictures. I mean, it's, it's really hard to capture in a picture how large this thing is. I mean, here's the base of that tree, and here are people in relationship to that tree. That's me in the yellow right there repelling. Just kidding. <laughs> Some guy on National Geographic. But one of the really interesting things about this tree is that despite the fact that this behemoth um, stands at 275 feet tall, one of the really interesting things is that the root structure of these trees, the sequoia trees, only go down 6 to 12 feet. 
And yet, one of the things that's very interesting about these trees is that they are resilient to earthquakes, they're resilient to fire, and even windstorms that may come in. Now, one of the really fascinating parts about this tree is the fact that uh, underneath the root structure, the way that it gains stability is that their root structure actually interlocks with other trees. And so when you look beneath the surface of these sequoia trees, it actually, their root system actually looks like an army of men and women interlocking their arms, supporting one another, and, and distributing nutrients to one another. And I think this gives us sort of a picture of what God wants for us as his community, that we need to be able to support one another, to help one another out during times of difficulty, and to supply the nutrients for spiritual growth so that we can all develop. Now, <clears throat> I want to spend the remaining time we have talking about some of the things that I think are corrosive elements to community. Of course, there are a lot of different things that we could analyze here, but here I think are a few of the, the major elements in our culture today that corrode community. I think the first thing is the modern conception of freedom. You know, when we think of freedom today, I think freedom in our culture means that you are free to do whatever you want without any sort of constraints in your life. And so when we think of this modern conception of freedom, I think our modern culture's idea of freedom is wholly negative. You know, philosophers, they talk about both positive and negative liberty. When you talk about positive liberty, it's the freedom for something. In other words, it's the freedom to be able to devote yourself to a pursuit that you desire. Negative freedom means freedom from any sort of constraint or anything that would inhibit us in what we want to pursue. And I think the foundation of this modern view or modern conception of freedom is the fact that in our culture today, there is disbelief among most people that there's any sort of moral foundation or absolute. And so when you talk about the idea of freedom for something, I think people are deathly afraid to try to define what that is because they're afraid of saying, you ought to do this thing. Because in doing so, you're constraining that person's freedom. And yet, when we think about freedom as an end in itself, that's sort of incomplete. One of the really beautiful things about freedom is that it gives you the opportunity to live your life or devote yourself to something. You know, defining freedom as the absence of constraints doesn't actually work in reality. You know, it's easy for us to sort of think about freedom as one entity. But actually, there are a lot of different freedoms that we have in life. And reality is that when we find ourselves in certain situations, in order to enjoy freedom in one area, we often have to restrict ourselves and our freedoms in another. You know, imagine a 60-year-old man. He loves eating his favorite foods. He finds great comfort and happiness from being able to eat these foods, but at the same time, he loves spending time with his grandchildren. 
So at his annual doctor's appointment, his doctor says, unless you completely revamp your diet, you're gonna have a heart attack and you're gonna die early. And so this man has a choice. You know, on the one hand, he loves eating his favorite foods because it brings him comfort, but on the other hand, he values and loves his grandchildren and wants to prolong his life. And so in order to experience more time with his grandchildren, he's gonna have to restrict his freedoms in the area of his eating. Or take maybe an example that hits home with most of us. You know, on the one hand, we wanna have a great career and earn enough money so that we can have the freedom to be able to do things that we want. But on the other hand, we also have this impulse to go out and party with our friends and hang out instead of study and make the sacrifices necessary to get the grades that will ultimately get us the career that will get us the money which brings freedom. And so you're faced with a choice. You have to, you have to restrict your freedoms in one area or the other in order to get the thing that you desire most. And so this modern concept then of just having freedom doesn't really square or fit with what we see in reality. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of freedom in other areas in order to gain other freedoms. Now our culture's conception of freedom I think also fragments community. In order to be a part of a community, you need to give up certain elements of freedom. And I think that's one of the things that we see in our culture today, is a refusal to give up any of our freedoms, and yet there is this longing, this desire for connection to other people. Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Happiness Hypothesis, says, "Um, having community and relationships strengthens the immune system. It extends life more than does quitting smoking. Speeds recovery from surgery. It reduces the risks of depression and anxiety disorders. And he says we need to interact and intertwine with others. We need the give and take. We need to belong to one another. As human beings, we're ultra-social beings, species. And yet he points out an ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in search of personal and professional fulfillment, thereby breaking the relationships that were probably their best hope of such fulfillment. There's this belief that what's truly going to bring me happiness is to experience freedom and to do whatever I want. And yet, the reality is, true happiness and fulfillment comes from the relationships that we have with with our family and our friends. You know, a few months ago, my father-in-law passed away from pancreatic cancer. And um, he was an accomplished man. He got his undergraduate in history at OU got his master's degree, an MBA. He had an incredibly successful career. And yet, when we spent time memorializing him and his life, none of those things came up. None of those things mattered. The things that were highlighted about him and his life were his love for his children, 
his humility. These relational qualities that impacted those around him. And that should serve as, as really a picture of, of the kind of life we should live. What's going to matter one day when your life is summarized in, in a memorial service or a eulogy? Is it going to be the things that you did, the money you had? Or is it going to be the impact you had on the people around you? You know, this modern conception of freedom erodes relationships. When you think about trying to love somebody, it requires a certain level of sacrifice when it comes to your freedoms. You know, imagine if you got married. Some of you don't have to imagine that. But imagine if you were married. You know, you have the freedom to spend your money however you want. You may decide that you want to spend your money and buy a boat. Or maybe you decide that you want to go to Europe and so you buy plane tickets and disappear for three weeks without telling your spouse. Now you're free to do all of those things, but it's going to be damaging to your relationship, okay? And, you know, even going beyond just the logistics of everyday life when it comes to a relationship, you know, think about things even on a deeper level. If you want to be in a significant relationship with somebody and they encounter sickness or they encounter difficulty in their lives, it's gonna require significant sacrifice on your part to meet their needs if you wanna be in a love relationship. And so to have real, long-lasting relationships It requires personal sacrifice. It means limiting our freedoms in certain areas. You know, the great thing is that God has set a pattern for us already. God purchased our freedom in Christ so that we could actually use it positively. Think about what Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 13 and 14. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. God has given you incredible freedom in Christ. He's freed you from the power of sin, so you're no longer enslaved to that. He's freed you from the fear that one day you're gonna die eternally and never be able to live on. He's given you all of those freedoms, including your new identity in Christ, so that you can live sacrificially for others, not so that you can live selfishly. And Jesus really exemplified this in his life. In Philippians 2, verse six through eight, Paul says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You have to have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he actually gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Even though Jesus was God, He set aside those privileges, those freedoms that he could have expressed on earth in order to serve and love us. And Jesus experienced incredible joy through that. You know, it seems counterintuitive. What's really gonna make you happy and fulfilled is not 
thinking about yourself more and trying to pursue your own desires more, but it's actually loving other people? That seems counterintuitive, but that's the way that God has designed us. Also, I think that there is a drive to establish our own sense of identity. You know, in our culture today, it's all about self-assertion. You know, really, the heroic narrative in our culture is somebody who has these desires and their drives and that they faced opposition from society but overcame that. And yet, I think in more traditional cultures, there is a belief that society and your family and culture confers honor upon you because of your duty and devotion. It's about essentially fulfilling your obligation. So you really, you find your place, your sense of who you are, your identity from what your culture says you are. And so really, you just need to stay in your place. You can't move. Whereas this modern sense of trying to create your own sense of identity, you're no longer looking outward to your society or your family or your culture for validation and self-worth. You're looking primarily inward to yourself by pursuing your desires and your drives. Now, I think that there is some positive, there, there's a positive aspect to this. You know, you think about more traditional cultures and you're sort of locked in a certain social strata, right? Maybe 200, 300 years ago, maybe you grew up in a family of poor cobblers, right? Or maybe a poor blacksmith family. And so your great-grandfather, your grandfather, your dad, all of your uncles, they're blacksmiths. And so the thought that, you know, one day I want to aspire to become a doctor was completely asinine. You, you had to stay in your place in the world and you were going to become what your family told you. And so there was no way that you could experience social mobility in that, in that culture. Today, you can escape that. And so that's a wonderful thing. But I think, though, that there are some other negatives that come with this as well. I think our modern Western view of identity formation has proved to be every bit as crushing in a lot of ways. You know, when we think about this idea of trying to form our own sense of identity, it's all about trying to formulate who I am based on self-assertion. Gail Sheehy, who wrote this book called Passages in the 1970s, which the Library of Congress says is one of the top 10 most influential books in the last century. She says, you're moving away, away from institutional claims and other people's agendas, away from external valuations and accreditations in search of inner validation. You're moving out of social roles and into the self. Whatever counterfeit safety we hold from overinvestments in people and institutions must be given up. The inner custodian, that is your conscience, must be unseated from the controls. No foreign or external power can direct our journey from now on. It is for each of us to find a course that is valid by our own reckoning. And so it's all about self-assertion. It's all about us obtaining a sense of self-worth from what we do 
and who we are. <clears throat> I think ironically, well, one thing I wanted to mention here is I think when, you know, in our culture today, you know, we live in a culture that believes in a meritocracy. In other words, you get the good things in life based on the merit of success that you achieve in your life. And so one of the real difficulties that comes from that is once you start to fail or you run into difficulty, then your, self, your sense of self-worth starts to become a little bit fragile. You start to feel like, who am I? I don't know who I am because I used to define myself but I, by, by what I was good at, what I was able to do. Ironically, I think this increases the pressure and anxiety you feel to obtain people's applause and approval. You know, this thought that I'm not going to look to my family or what people think about me or my culture for my sense of self-worth. Instead, I'm gonna look to my achievements, my success, my gifting, my personal attractiveness for a sense of self-worth. That's really a trap. You know, you think about people who uh, look at themselves and they say, okay, I'm trying to create myself in this certain area, this, this new space. And so I need to figure out how I'm gonna look, what should be my style. You know, you buy consumer goods in order to try to create a brand. So you find yourself increasingly buying and consuming more and more things in order to try to bolster your sense of self-worth. Or what about in the area of success in career? You know, we no longer care what our parents say about us because after all, they're like, I'll be proud of you, honey, no matter what, what you do with your life. And so we no longer look to them for a sense of validation, but in the area in which we are striving, the validation of our peers and the people that we admire, those are the people in which we are gaining a sense of self-worth from. Charles Taylor, the Christian philosopher, says this makes us more than ever vulnerable to the recognition given or withheld by significant others. And so ironically, even though we try to escape external validation by looking simply inward, we find ourselves in the area that we're pursuing looking for the validation from the people who uh, we care about that, that we, where we want to succeed. And so we not only have to be successful, we not only have to be beautiful, but the people around us have to acknowledge that that's true too. You know, when we get... Ex when we look at what God confers to us, he gives us external validation from God when, we, when he gives us our new identity in Christ. You know, one of the really amazing things about being a child of God is that even when we fail, even when we don't perform to the standards that we feel like we should be performing, when the people around us think that we're a failure, God doesn't see us that way. He tells us that we are valued, that we are loved, and that that's detached from our performance and, or what we think we are. And that's comforting to know that our identity is anchored, it's fixed in something that's never gonna change. But more than that, we're a part of God's community. That's part of our identity. 
Let's draw a few points of application. I think, first of all, like a human body, the body of Christ contains both unity and diversity. And that's an amazing thing. I remember when I first started coming around, I loved the community, but I was worried that it would swallow up my sense of identity, my individuality. I'm being consumed by this this thing that I'm a part of. And and yet at the same time, I love the fact that I was a part of something bigger than myself. And I remember hearing a teaching about the body of Christ where the teacher pointed out that in the body of Christ, we enjoy both incredible unity and yet God makes us incredibly diverse. He gives each and every one of us spiritual gifts so that we can play our unique role I remember a guy who um, didn't make it to a meeting one night and the next day his buddy was like, oh man, I didn't see you at home church the other day. And he's like, yeah, you know, my car broke down on the way to home church. He's like, that's a bummer. He's like, yeah, you know, the worst part about it is that I know that because I was missing, I wasn't able to play my unique role that night. I mean, (laughs) How would our community look if each and every one of us had that attitude? Man, I'm bummed that I wasn't there because, you know, there was a hole there that I knew that I could fill. Secondly, entrance into God's community requires humility. You know, that's how this all started. Paul says that we should have a humble attitude, that we shouldn't esteem ourselves more highly than we ought to, that we should see ourselves rightly as people who fall short of God's standard and yet individuals whom God loves and sacrificed himself for. You know, if you're here tonight and if you've never come into a relationship with God, God not only wants to give you a community of people who love you, that you are connected to, he also wants to give you eternal life. And so if you're here tonight and if you've never received God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, You could turn to him at any time in your heart and receive the gift that he wants to give you. Finally, thriving in God's community requires humility. You know, it's humility from first to last. And, you know, you're going to learn this in increasing measure as God continues to humble you and bring things into your life to show you your inadequacy. But that's not a bad thing. Because hopefully the effect that it'll have is actually to bring you closer to him in dependence. Yeah, we're grateful that you have placed us in community. And um, we pray that we would evaluate some of these areas that could be corrosive to community that maybe we're buying into. Pray that you would help us to think about those areas and to evaluate them. And um, I pray that we can come to a place where we land on your view of things instead of our own. And I pray finally for those of us who have never made a relationship with you possible, pray that uh, we would just turn to you in faith and receive the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus Christ. And um, we thank you for anyone who did that, not only because they forged a relationship with you, but also united themselves with those of us who also know you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.